Acts chapter 18 is our sermon text for tonight. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. Acts 18, verse 24. This is the account of Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. Why don't we begin, I'll begin reading at verse 18, and we'll read all the way through uh, 28, but focusing on 24 through 28, we'll read 18 to get some of the context. This is God's holy word given to us. His people for our good. Let's attend to its reading. Paul, Acts 18, verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they, had, when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile... And here's our text for tonight. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, tonight we'll close this short sermon series on the topic of the role of women in the church. We've been saying over the past few weeks, this is a a topic that needs to be addressed, sorely needed in the church in order to inform and uh, to give a, a, a really a biblical vision of what God calls women to do. So often in today's church, there are two basic camps, or it seems like there are two basic camps. The first is the camp that we would say incorrectly interprets the scriptures in saying that women can do anything in the church, include serving in these governing roles, in ministerial roles, being ordained as pastors. We would say that uh, this either misses the clear teaching of scripture or it disregards the authority of the scriptures in uh, the governance of the church and regulating all that we do as the people of God. You go and you read the academic literature. Some people may say that, well, uh, Paul in the books of 1 Timothy and Titus, that is culturally conditioned and they have various ways to explain it away. 
Or there, may, there are people who say, no, Paul really did say that, but here's why it doesn't apply uh, to the church today. So that's one camp. But then so often it seems that the, uh, that the perception of people is that the only other option is that since uh, men are commanded to be pastors, elders, and deacons, then the only other option um, is that women are left with nothing to do. And that's what we've been trying to address with this sermon series, showing that God has quite a different plan indeed. We want to be absolutely clear on where we stand as a, as a church, that we stand within the historic interpretation of the, the scriptures with the church on this issue, that this has been an issue that really has only flipped in the last 75 years, probably, perhaps even less than that, and has certainly accelerated considerably within the last 30 years. Uh, we say that even while knowing that many of the changes in society over the last 100 years or so have been for uh, the better. But a lot of the changes in society have also not been for the better. And uh, the, the assumption that many people have that these teachings on the church governance and church structure being outdated and inapplicable is simply wrong. So we must stand for the truth even when it hurts to do so, and even when we might be despised for it. Uh, but the reason we have gone about this series in this way, we haven't gone through all of the basic texts that people always argue for, we haven't been giving really that positive case uh, for our stance on women's roles in the church, rather uh, trying to go to elsewhere, other places in Scripture to say, here's what God wants women to be doing, and, and what a robust vision he has for women and for the health of the church. Because we don't want to be accused of being those kind of people who would say women have nothing to do. It's just the opposite that we've been saying. Uh, the scriptures clearly, clearly teach excuse me, that women are of the same value as men. That they are a necessary part of life in general and of the life of the church. And they are called to do a lot within the people of God. For their own good and for the good of the church. So this has been about forming these categories and then filling them. And saying here's what God calls women to do and to be doing. Recapturing the imagination as I have been saying. Our, our position, the, the shorthand nickname for it is complementarianism. Right? That men design, or God designed men and women with distinct roles. And those roles are complementary recapturing the imagination to say that there is still a robust vision for what men and women are supposed to do in the church. The feeling uh, about this really could be summarized in the famous interaction between Jesus and Mary and Martha, as we find in the Gospel of Luke, for instance. Jesus is in Bethany, teaching and gathering followers unto himself and his earthly ministry. And uh, we all know this story, right? Mary sits at the feet of Jesus while she is receiving all of his teaching, she's eager to learn. And what's Martha doing? Martha is getting things ready. She's handling logistical things. She's going around the house, getting the food ready and setting everything up. Martha assumes that Jesus would rebuke Mary for doing this. So he go, she goes to the Lord. And as we read in Luke chapter 10, after she speaks to Jesus... Jesus famously says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Many women perhaps feel a lot like Martha 
at certain times, particularly women who subscribe to and are completely comfortable with a more traditional reading of gender roles in the church. Many women may say, it's, it's simply better for me to do the kinds of things that a Martha would do. I'll gladly stay in my lane. I'll get things ready for others while other people learn about the Bible. But what does Jesus say? He says that Mary has chosen the good portion, which really means the better portion. That's how you could translate that. Mary has chosen what is better, sitting at my feet and learning about me. Because growing in our knowledge of God is better than attending to our earthly needs for men and for women. So we have taken this journey to remind ourselves of that truth, that we are all to grow in our knowledge of God and our love for him through the word of God. Everyone is a theologian in the church. Everyone is called to learn doctrine. And when women grow in this way, and when women are are committed to growing in this way, to being women of God who know the truth of Scripture, they become the best version of the necessary ally that God has designed them to be. We, we talked about that idea from Genesis, of the, that idea of women as necessary allies, which is really the best way to translate that word in Genesis, helper, when God says, he sees man, says it's not good that man shall be alone, I will make for him a helper. You could translate that word as a necessary ally. It's a role that is essential to achieving a purpose or a goal, and that is what women are, essential to achieving the God-ordained purpose that he has given to the human race. So our central truth tonight is that when women have knowledge of God and put it to its proper use, they can teach and instruct all people whom God brings into their life in Christ, including men. So first, just a summary of what we've seen so far as we have unpacked the scriptures, and we have done so in Titus chapter 2. The first idea was the importance of learning sound doctrine. Right? All, uh, all people are called to be learners, lifelong learners, specific, specifically when it comes to doctrine. Much like the episode with Mary and Martha, um, this is what God calls women to do, to give themselves to what is better, knowing God and knowing Him rightly. It's a responsibility of, of, uh, of women to be engaged in this process in the church, to sit under the preaching and the teaching of the Word and the responsibility to be growing in their knowledge of God and their love for Him. That's a primary calling upon women, growing in their, in their knowledge of God and their holiness, to seek after God with her whole heart and right doctrine, good doctrine, is essential to this picture. They must do so within the rightly ordered church, the church that is regulated by Scripture, the church that takes stock of all that God says for His people to do in the Word of God. And that means attending to what is said in regards to gender roles in the church. Then last week we considered what is probably uh, the, the picture that most women have heard before and in which they will involve themselves the most as they invest in the life of the church. And that was the picture of, of godly women. Mostly uh, the, the picture was older women who model godliness and who train other women to live for the glory of God. Right, Modeling godliness and training other women for it. For many women that is in the context of marriage and the home. Coming alongside younger women who are married and uh, who are part of, 
a family. But that does not mean that single women or that widows are left out of that picture. Rather, spiritual motherhood is an essential part of that process as well. And quite frankly, the church needs to recover these things. That They're not suggestions made by God. These are commandments that God has given to us. Women are commanded to understand that within the people of God, there is a responsibility to this endeavor. We all figure in this community. We all figure in the spiritual health of this community. Not a suggestion, but rather a command. Either you are to be working at training and modeling godliness, or you are to be making sure that you are surrounding yourself with the right women who can model it for you and train you for it. I believe in this church we have a blessing, a blessing of godly women, young and old. And my hope for this is that you would be encouraged to give yourselves even more to that process. So that brings us to tonight, where we consider uh, how the biblical picture of women and women with knowledge, how that comes to bear upon the ministerial offices in the church, upon the idea of the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God from the authoritative position that God has set up in the church, the role of a teaching elder or a minister, that role which is reserved for men. We see an example tonight in the book of Acts of one way in which the knowledge, the doctrine that women know and that they can learn can intersect with that authoritative position of a pastor or an elder. I chose this passage in Acts 18 because it's exactly illustrative of what I think is the way in which men who serve in the authoritative uh, preaching of the word in the church, how they are still to learn from women who may be able to point things out in scripture that they have yet to see Clearly, So in Acts, chapter, in Acts 18, what we read, the main character is Apollos. He's a great leader in the early church. As is shown here in the passage, he's a powerful speaker. He's a bright man. He's a bold leader. He followed Paul's ministry in Corinth, even to the, the point where Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I planted, but Apollos watered. We first hear of him here in Acts, in chapter 18. He comes to the city of Ephesus. And what we see is that he knows about the doctrine of the gospel. He knows about the teachings of Jesus, but there's something missing in what he's saying. There's something that is missing. And the only clue that we are given here has to do with the baptism of John. We read that he, he knows only the baptism of John. That is, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as some call him. The one who comes before Jesus and prepares the way for Jesus. Apollos only knew about that baptism. So he has a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, or relatively thorough anyways, but there's some sense in which he's not up to speed on the whole story. So uh, some scholars think that Apollos perhaps did not know yet about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, even though he knew about Jesus and Jesus' teachings. And he knew how John was paving the way for Jesus and saying, I'm not the Messiah, Jesus is. Other scholars have said and suggested, and that seems a little bit more likely to me, that uh, he perhaps did not know that when Jesus ascended, that Jesus commanded us to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and perhaps he did not know about what had happened on the day of Pentecost. You know, uh, back then, news didn't travel as, as quickly. So I think that's probably what's going on here uh, Apollos has yet to learn about what Jesus said in the ascension 
to go and to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and perhaps uh, not understanding what had happened on the day of Pentecost either. But what we see in response to this issue is the care and humility that all sides exercise in this situation because it's a beautiful picture of the people of God working together to achieve a common goal within the system that God has set up for his church in regulating it by scripture. Beautiful picture for us and how the kingdom grows and advances because of the humility shown in this particular situation, which brings us to Priscilla and Aquila, who are also important players in the early church. A husband and wife couple. Paul calls them elsewhere. He calls them fellow workers in Jesus Christ who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Hugely important, apparently, in the life of the early church. That's high praise for both a man and a woman both of whom themselves were not part of the ordained ministry and the authoritative preaching of the word of God. They were together with Paul in the trade of tent making. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why they grew so closely with Paul. Some commentators speculate that the reason that both Luke and Paul, remember Luke was discipled by Paul, and so they both write it the same way. They don't say Aquila and Priscilla, which would have been the normal way to write it, write the man's name first, But rather, they both repeatedly say Priscilla and Aquila with the woman's name first. Perhaps she was either the one who ran their tent-making business or she was more prominent socially. She was more well-known socially. But here in Acts, they show how zealous they are for the truth of God. And to see that truth come to bear in the right way. Not in a self-exalting way. Not in a selfish way, but in a humble way. Calvin remarks... How far, he says, how far Priscilla and Aquila are from the love of themselves. Because if you imagine this situation, and Apollos comes along, and he's, he's a, a great speaker, a bold speaker. He knows the scriptures in some sense. He's probably speaking largely from memory. But then Priscilla and Aquila start to notice something, and there's something missing in his teaching. He's not up to speed on all the things that have happened in redemptive history. What would be the selfish thing to do? The selfish thing to do from the stance of Priscilla and Aquila would be to to rise up in the middle of this meeting where Apollos is speaking and speaking powerfully and trying to point people to the work and the teachings of Christ and to begin confronting him in front of everyone as he taught and saying, no, 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 Apollos, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. You're you're, you're missing a, a big piece of the puzzle. Now, if they would have done this, this would have proven that Apollos had things to learn. This would have proven that he really uh, was not up to speed on everything, but it probably would have damaged the witness of the Christians who were always needing, especially at that time, always needing to show a united front, particularly as they dealt with persecution and having to show uh, their unity at all times, something that we have certainly fallen very far from. So rather than showing up Apollos in front of everyone, what do they do? We read that Priscilla and Aquila take him into their home. So here we see the ancient practice of Christian hospitality. 
at work, and they do some discipling and education right there in their home. So while it is perhaps true that Apollos was more learned, he was a more educated man, and perhaps had more of the scriptures memorized, and was able to use his ability to speak in more powerful ways and to refute powerful figures who would rise up against him, he needed to learn some basic things about the kingdom of Christ. He just did not have the whole story fleshed out. So humbly, Priscilla and Aquila take him into their home without refuting him in public. Take him into their home because they wanted to see the kingdom of God advance. Because they wanted to see Christ exalted and glorified. They take him into their home and they teach him together. The text makes it very clear that both of them, Priscilla and Aquila, are involved in teaching him in this private way. This means that it took humility on the part of Apollos too. Because here's a learned man, here's an educated man uh, who's able to speak powerfully in public. And yet he had to humbly accept all of the things that Priscilla and Aquila were telling him and incorporate it into his teaching. So we see humility on all sides. Let's take stock in all of this and notice what is going on. We have three people here who are acting. If you remember Titus 2, remember that that little phrase where Paul is, is explaining to women the kind of process they are to involve themselves in in modeling godliness and training for godliness. He says, do that so that the word of God may not be reviled. That's exactly what Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos do here. They act in a way so that the word of God may not be reviled. They say, what is the way in which God has ordered his church? And then they proceed in gentle correction out of love. Priscilla and Aquila do anyways. Gentle correction out of love in ways that are not self-serving but are for the good of the kingdom. Humility exercised in all ways. And then finally we see that a woman who has knowledge that this man does not have, she finds a way to correctly and lovingly teach him in a way that does not overthrow the prescribed order of the church, which is that men are to occupy the positions, the teaching positions of authority like Apollos here. So Calvin comments by saying this, and this really captures it, for us, he says, one of the chief teachers of the church, that's Apollos, one of the chief teachers of the church was instructed by a woman. So perhaps you say to yourself, well, doesn't this sort of disprove everything we've been saying? Doesn't this prove that women can and should be ministers and pastors and elders and perhaps deacons? There are times that they know important things that men do not know. And I Really, I I perhaps don't have any magic bullet answer, if that's what you're wondering. It very simply comes down to the teaching we have in the scriptures concerning the order and the governance of the church. And how it it is rooted, we see that, that Paul repeatedly appeals back to creation. He appeals back to creation. He says, uh, man was created first. Woman was created to be his helper or his necessary ally. Uh, That plays into the authority structures in the home. And that authority structure that we see in the home is then uh, duplicated in the church. That men are to have these governing roles. And you see the connection there in the book of 1 Timothy where Paul says, if a man is one of the qualifications for an elder is he must rule his own household well. And then he says, If a man cannot rule his own household well, how can he rule in the household of God? And so that order is continued in the church. Not in the sense that every single man 
in a church has authority over every single woman. I, I, you, you run across that teaching sometimes. And it's basically that you go through, the, you, in, in the life of the church, every single man has authority over every single woman. And I don't think that's what's going on in Scripture at all. There are those who are appointed to rule in the household of God. And those who are appointed to rule are to be men. Ultimately, we, si- we simply say that God is wiser than we are. He's wiser than we are. We say, have thine own way. Have thine own way. Let your way and your truth and your wisdom be known in me. And we lean on his wisdom as we follow his ways in the church. So, what, so then what is it that happens in this instance? What is it that Priscilla does with Apollos? What do we learn from it? What's the, what's the take home from all of this? Amy Bird, an author, comments on it, she says this. Is there a difference between preaching God's word and reflecting on it, explaining it, writing about it, and even teaching it in a different setting like outside the worship service? Yes, if it is done faithfully, we are talking about a difference between the authority of the word of God and the authority of the word of man. What she's saying, she's saying that when the word of God is opened up faithfully within the context of the people of God in the church. It carries the authority of the word of God itself. And there can be various things that happen outside of, of those settings. And that is the word of man, where we're, we're trying to, to, to dig into Scripture together. Perhaps that we know that the Holy Spirit is still active in those ways, but not in the exact same way. The authority of the word of God and the authority of the word of man. She goes on. She says, Could a woman compose and deliver a sermon-worthy exposition of Scripture that would enlighten those listening? Sure, many women could, but this is not our calling. And besides, delivering good exposition of Scripture is not the only responsibility of being a preacher. But when they do preach, it comes with the authority of the Word of God to his people. I, that is, she, she is speaking, I do not lead authoritatively from a pulpit. The office of pastor is different from any other teaching. Pastors are set apart by a special calling to proclaim God's word in a context in which God promises to bless us in Christ. So outside of that, there's a huge area of Christian liberty. And there are many instances uh, where, like what we see in Acts chapter 18, a man may learn something from a woman. But in terms of ordained ministry of the word, women are not to teach men. But outside of that, there is teaching of men that women do, and learning things from women. Even in Scripture, in ages when the canon of Scripture was not closed, we have women who would prophesy. You see that even in the book of Acts. We have women who spoke words of truth in various circumstances. We have uh, women who put on display the kind of, of solid godly doctrine that they had in their minds and in their hearts. Think of, the, the, for instance, the songs of Mary and Hannah. Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel, Mary, the mother of our Lord, where they say in their songs things like, My heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. He who is mighty has done great things for me. There is none holy like the Lord. These are women, these are women who knew their doctrine, and they knew the promises of God, and they were able to speak because of it. Uh, just to illustrate what's been going on in this series, I've made it a point although I know I've been cheating a little bit and quoting John Calvin because 
uh, I sometimes I can't I can't resist, and he's the one that I read usually the most. But I've made it a point in this series to quote almost exclusively women, women authors, so that I could say at the end that I found the teaching of this women so these women so helpful to me and illuminating in how I thought about the roles of women in the church. Furthermore, I learn from many of you, from many of you women who show me the ins and outs of the Christian life, who show me things that I have had yet to learn, who remind me of things that I have forgotten. I learn from my wife who shows and who teaches me many things. I think any pastor who's worth his salt says that it's often the wisdom of his wife that prevails upon him in the preaching of the word in his sermons and in his ministry. And that's what we must recognize, that just because God sets up an order in the church does not mean that he is cutting off half of the church from having a vital role in the life of the body of Christ. But rather, he knows what is right. He's wiser than we are. He has set up a prescribed order, and we in our flesh will want to fight against that. So let us not be people who fight against the wisdom of God but find the flourishing of our own lives within that wisdom. We're running out of time, so I just wanted to to leave uh, this series with a couple of ways in which we find that women are the necessary allies um, in the life of the church, and as they stand, perhaps alongside their husband, perhaps uh, as single women in the church, as well, but women are necessary allies in these ways, and I'm getting most of these from uh, a book by Amy Bird and her book No Little Wom- No Little Women. First, women are necessary allies to men by warning them of and turning them away from evil. Women are necessary allies to men by warning them of evil and turning them away from evil. We see this in scripture. Remember when David is filled with rage, he's going to kill Nabal, the husband of Abigail. Filled with rage. And remember the the, the wisdom of Abigail in that account and how she so gently and calmly speaks to David, who is a powerful man at that point. And she points out how foolish it would be to take out revenge upon Nabal. And David If not for her kind voice, he would have taken out vengeance and he would have shown himself to be just like King Saul. But because the wisdom of Abigail prevailed, he was turned away from evil. If you're a woman, God has given you a a special voice, a special way of looking at things. Different than how men often see things and we need to hear that voice in our lives. Women are necessary allies as co-fighters against evil enemies. The book of Esther is perhaps the most inspiring example of this. Esther teams up with Mordecai to stand for the good of the people of God against the evil Haman. Esther is full of faith and courage, a fierce faith and a tenacity that women have. They're not only uh, gentle and kind, but they stand for truth with the best of them. And Esther really is God's gift to his people. You know, the name of God never occurs in the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Bible where the, where the name of God never occur, occurs. And that is because uh, we see the Lord. We see the Lord and his presence with his people in the person of Esther. So women are co-fighters against evil enemies, vitally involved uh, in the life of the church and standing for the truth 
women are necessary allies by mediating the word of the Lord. Really, this is a way of being discerning. Women have discernment that on the whole, generally speaking, is different than that of a man's, but vitally important uh, to the life of the church. My dad is uh, one of the most discerning men I've ever known. Uh, But just to illustrate this point, when my folks were in seminary, uh, my dad, my parents went up uh, to seminary up in Deerfield at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. My dad wanted to uh, go. This was early or mid-80s or so. And this is when the, the, the whole Willow Creek thing was really blowing up. It was really becoming a huge thing. And uh, that was right up there, right around that, that seminary. And so uh, my dad wanted to go and visit that church and perhaps become a part of that church, right? Because at that point, the whole church growth movement was really gaining momentum. And he was really he was just curious about it and why it was working so well, why it was getting so many people through uh, the doors and everything. So he wanted to go and see it for himself. A uh, man that I... I think his discernment is, is so, is wonderful. But uh, my mom would not let them go. She said, no, Arvid, we're not going there. We're not going to do it. Uh, you know, we, we cannot, various reasons. And she basically reasoned with him and, and talked him out of it, essentially. And then, of course, uh, years later, he had a much different perspective on things than we've even seen in the past couple of months. Uh, how the, the whole church growth movement in many ways is coming crumbling down as you build uh, the life of a church around a personality and how destructive that uh, can be. Women are necessary allies by giving wise instruction and counsel. Listen to these words. This is John Wesley's mom. Uh, John Wesley was a, a, a man of God. Uh, really, you know, he, he gets painted as a Wesleyan, but if you read the works of John Wesley, he's really more like a, a confused Calvinist. But listen to what his mom said. As John wrote his mom, said, Mom, what is sin? I I don't know how to define sin. She said this, Susanna Wesley. "Uh, Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things, in short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. Women, give wise instruction and counsel. Women are necessary allies by responding to God as an example of faithfulness. You know, we're called to be the bride of Christ. We are called to submit to Christ. The church is called to submit to Christ. And when you see a godly woman who understands her call to submit to her husband, to submit to the authority of Christ in the church, they teach men about what it means to submit submit to Christ, because we all need to do that, to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. So women have that unique authority to show men how it is that we would lovingly submit to Christ as they lovingly lay down their own prerogatives and become dependent on the leadership of another. Finally, uh, women are necessary allies by influencing men from a gift of empathy and Relatedness. As a general rule, women are more empathetic than men and relationally driven. Women of God can use their relational makeup in these areas to help men see things that they would not normally see. So much like uh, the story in Acts, we need humility on both sides. We need people who are committed to the glory of Christ, committed to the kingdom of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God in order for a mindset like this to work. 
But all that to say that uh, as we've considered this in recent weeks, what I want to leave you with is that God has a robust vision for what he wants the women of God to do in his church and in the midst of, in the midst of his people. And in all these things, women show that they are essential to fulfilling our God-ordained purpose. You are that necessary ally without which, without which, our God-ordained purposes could not be fulfilled. You know, God is perfect. God is eternal. God needs nothing besides himself. He is independent in and of himself. Doesn't need anything else. God looked at man and he said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Something was missing. And so he created women as the necessary allies. So in that way, women, by their very existence, point us to a human being's need for God. Because the woman is to the man what God in Christ is to all of humanity. That which we needed, that which we stand deficient of in ourselves, and we cannot find the answer within ourselves. Women are a wonderful picture of that, in that they are a picture of the need that we have for God, the need that we have for Christ, and to rest in Him and to know that this life will not make sense, we will not be fulfilled, we will not be satisfied unless we find our joy in Christ alone. The complementarity of men and women point us to that truth. They point us to the truth of the life of the Trinity, relationally driven. Our God is triune, one in essence, three in person, but bound together in relationship. Women teach us about that as well. We give thanks for all of these things, and we ask that God uh, would bless this knowledge to us in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. And we pray uh, that we would hold it in our hearts and seek to honor you uh, as we, we think about these things together. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, let's sing just the odd-numbered verses of number 444.